Let us turn our Bibles open to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We are going to be reading verses 1 through 11. Now, before we begin, this is what is known commonly as the first creed of the Christian church. It was in Greek, in the Koine Greek, it is very clunky. But if you translate it to Aramaic, it flows. There is a belief that since St. Paul says he received this, then it is the proto-creed before the church brought about the Apostles' Creed. Hear the word of our Lord. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. At this time we're going to be turning to Exodus chapter 20. I know this isn't going to be like a standard Lenten service. My apologies. We can't do it in the more traditional way uh, given the online platform here. But now we're going to turn to Exodus 20. Hear the law of our Lord. From Exodus chapter 20, beginning in the first verse. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, or the sojourner who was within your gates. 
For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I've chosen two texts that we are going to be dwelling on obsessively for all of Lent, beginning with this Ash Wednesday. For those of us who can't go to church, maybe there is a Lenten soup supper going on, and maybe there is some sort of social event to the Lenten service. But is that what Lent is about? Is it about a soup supper? Is it about people getting together and feeling sad for an hour after they've had some fun? They've enjoyed chasing their children around, and the kids in the uh, the little nursery there play with a little ceiling fan and some toy cars made out of Legos before they can, well, see their parents, who are done feeling bad for an hour, and then they go home. That's not what Lent is about. Lent is all about the passion of our Lord, Christ who died for sinners. We have Good Friday to remember this, but we have all of Lent to meditate on it. People take up Lenten disciplines primarily these days to become acquainted with the suffering of Christ. You'll hear a priest somewhere say, Jesus gave up the flesh on his Back with the cat of nine tails, the least you can do to relate to that is to give up sweets or to give up social media, to give something up. And maybe a Lenten discipline helps people. It helps them to think about what Christ has done for us. But that is no replacement for actually thinking about what Christ has done for us. The very first line of the first creed in the church. What St. Paul received and what he delivered to the Corinthian Christians starts with this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. It starts with the crucifixion. And it says he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then we have the appearances to the apostles and to all the other disciples and finally to St. Paul, 
like a baby that is born a few weeks late. But it starts with Christ dying for us. And during this period in the church year, starting with Ash Wednesday, we want to begin to remember that and meditate on that. And why does this lead us to the Ten Commandments? Why would we go straight to Exodus chapter 20 for no other reason than the fact of the matter is most people don't know why Jesus died for them. They don't know what it means that Jesus died for our sins. Today we are going to look at those first two commandments. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Beloved Christ died for these sins, and you have committed them. I have committed them. You shall have no other gods before me. If we sin willingly, what have we said to God other than, I'm God? It's very nice of you, God, to have created the entirety of the heavens and the earth, but I know better when I decide to cheat on my taxes, dear Lord. I think I'm a little bit smarter than you. I think I'm a little bit better than you, oh God. Or perhaps we're obsessive over something. We expect all of our good, whether earthly or otherworldly, from something that is not God. I'm pretty sure all of us here have done it. We've not always been believers, and even if we were baptized as a baby, we are born idolaters until the waters of our baptism begin cleansing us from that sin. The moment the water hits your forehead as a little baby, yes, that sin goes away. But until then, even straight out of the womb, we are born infected with that original sin that says, I want to worship literally anything else. Moses gives us some handy examples, and I know our Reformed friends are itching to hear this as the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above. People worship the stars that is in the earth beneath. People have worshipped what from the earth beneath? Gold, jewels, precious things, or even the soil itself from which our crops grow. Or that is in the water under the earth. People do make an idol out of water. We do make an idol out of our hydration, our refreshment, and what we can do with it. Or the fishermen out there. Moses was leading the children of Israel where? To Canaan. And what was in Canaan? The Philistines, who had a fish god, Dagon, right there as an example for the Israelites to understand what it means to worship something in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And indeed, we truly do bow down to these things. We bow down to our marriages. We bow down to our money. We bow down to everything but God. In our daily lives, what do we think about every single day? It's not always God. 
Oh no. We set up idols everywhere, and I will disagree with our reformed friends who think of it in terms of a picture or a statue, one that severely understates our tendency to make other gods out of anything we can. For more information, we can easily consult Romans chapter 1, where St. Paul says that men made gods out of bugs, out of creeping things. Out of each other's genitals, they went into all sorts of unnatural behaviors because they just did not want to worship the true God. And it all started from the very beginning, from the fall in Eden, to a desire to worship something that was not God. For Eve, it was herself. For Adam, it was Eve. For Cain, it was his own goodness or so he thought, thinking he could offer a great sacrifice, and then when that idol was crashed down, what did he do but kill his brother? Since the beginning, this simple impulse to be our own God is absolutely core to our sinfulness as human beings. And beloved Christ died for that. Now think of that, that is the first commandment in the Decalogue in Christ died for it. The first and most egregious sin on the list. When you spit in God's face, you slap his son across the cheek, and you say, I want to be my own God, or I want my girlfriend to be my own God, or I want my bank account statement to be my own God, but not you. Even children do this when they have a favorite toy or a favorite television show they show the propensity to idolatry in this imagine the insult that god must suffer whenever we do this almost every waking moment of our life and christ died for that he died so that you would be forgiven of callously cruelly and coldly insulting God by saying you would worship something that is less than him, the genuine article. And we understand from our catechisms that this commandment tells us to fear, love, and trust our God above everything. To fear, love, and trust something is to say you put your faith there. You are commanded in the very first of the Ten Commandments to put your faith in God, fearing him, loving him, and trusting him for all your good. But idolatry and pagan worship is so endemic, so tied in with our fallen nature and woven into the flesh that the very basic commandment, to put faith in God and not anything else is anathema to us. After all, to this day, are there any churches these days that really, truly worship God? I don't want to get into denominational politics happening right now, but it seems to me that everybody in any major church organization, they're all saying no. Uh, we have masters that punish us if we go off the reservation. 
Caesar has said that if I'm identified as a bigot, we go down. We can lose our tax-exempt status. We can lose our nice, pretty church buildings. And all the more important, I lose my 501c3. I lose my IRA account. We lose our cushy, white-collar jobs. Even in the churches today. And for all of those devils out there behind their pulpits, sitting behind their desks, thinking that they are heroes for doing something that insults Christ, disobeys his great commission, kicks people out of the church who merely want to be Christians, Christ died for that too. The audacity of our Lord Jesus to do this. Even people we don't like, he died for them. Even ourselves, knowing that there's no greater critic of you than you, he died for you. Even though in your deepest heart of hearts, the heart from which our Lord Christ says spring all sorts of uncleanness and fornication and evil in the Gospel of St. Mark, he died for that, knowing exactly what your sinful human heart was like. Constantly straying from the true God, refusing to worship him as he is. When we ask, what exactly did Jesus die for? What did he incarnate as an innocent little baby, born in a manger, born to poverty, born to suffering, born to constant obedience to a law that takes no prisoners and is never satisfied. And then he was nailed to a cross. If we ask why he did that, we have to confess, along with St. Paul in Ephesians, that he died for his own enemies. Us. And that's just the first commandment. The second, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This is a secondary punishment to the first commandment's great punishment, in which God says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the, to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. We understand the stakes. If you live as an impenitent sinner, at what point does this pass on to your generations? Well, we better hope we repent of our sins to not see it inflicted on our children or our grandchildren. But even as a believer, we understand that as much as we sin against God every day, countless numbers of times, we deserve nothing but wrath. Jesus died for that. He died to remove that curse, the visitation of sin upon the third and fourth generation, going out hundreds of years, and says that on account of his death on a cross for you, Andy, for you, my spouse, for Victor, for Lurk, for Moss, for Barometer, for Radish, for McKay, and uh, for Bugampu here. He died for that. He died so that God would look at you and go, actually, I'm going to count this one as showing me steadfast love who loves me and keeps my commandments. I'm going to show love to thousands of them on account of my son who died for them. But the second commandment, 
when we see, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Do we understand that we bear as Christians a very specific and grave responsibility for this? The word Christian means belonging to the party of Christ. Someone who believes and supports Christ in his cause, who follows him, who trusts in him. And you bear the name of Christ as a Christian. Upon the waters of your baptism, you are dubbed one who belongs to Christ. And every time you sin, you take his name in vain. Every time we say something that does not belong in the annals of Christian doctrine, we take God's name in vain. Is there any mercy left then for the Baptist who refuses to believe the plain words of Christ, that his body and his blood are present in, with, and under the elements in communion? He takes God's name in vain when he teaches falsely what he ought to know better. Is there any mercy for the Roman Catholic who teaches that we are justified by faith and works? Contrary to what St. Paul says when he says we are justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Is there any mercy for the Methodist out there that so blithely with all of his Armenian friends says that, oh yeah, you can decide that you have faith. That first commandment tells you to have faith in God. Absolutely. We can just do this by our own power in spite of our fallen nature. That's fine. I'm going to clap the dust off of my hands and rest on my laurels. Is there any mercy for him? Before we answer that question, is there any mercy for the Lutheran? The Lutheran who has decided that he has such freedom in Christ that he can become the papist. That he can decide he is part of an infallible magisterium. That he has more paper popes than he can hold. And uh, this always seems to trend towards the way of the world and what the world wants, what the world demands. And every single Lutheran church is doing this right now. Is there any mercy for them as worldly people? The answer is yes for all of these. Because Christ died for that. Christ died for every man, woman, and children that calls Christ a liar. Christ died for every single one of us who out of our foolish, stupid human mouths when we speak without any preparation or study and just off the cuff give a bad answer to a theological question, he died for that. He died for everybody that gives him a bad name. He died for all of the Gnostics who claimed that all Jesus was was a super enlightened guru aeon, demoting him. He died for all the Aryans out there who denied Christ's deity entirely. Can you imagine dying for someone whom you know has borne false witness against you? Who has used your name as a swear word? Who has called you a liar to your face? Knowing that this person, you could squish them at any time. You could send them into the fires of hell for all eternity. Christ died for that person who does it, and that person is me. That person is you. This is the scandal of the cross, beloved. That when we spend Lent 
actually meditating on every single one of these most holy Ten Commandments and realize that we are the worst of the poorest of miserable sinners. And then we realize that deserving nothing good, Christ still died for us. We understand why the world calls this foolishness, don't we? We understand why the world would say, that Jesus guy that you worship sounds like a fool. Of course, we understand they're wrong. I have no other way to get into heaven except by the mercies of my God. If Jesus hadn't died for us on that cross, if he had not suffered all of the mocking and the spitting and the laughter right in his face, if he had not suffered death leading to the spear wound in his side, then we would be poured out for all eternity. We would be the ones eating and devouring each other with no hope, saying, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. We have no discipline needed. We have no hope whatsoever. If Christ had not died for us, we would have nothing. Do we understand our helplessness here that we need him? Somebody might say I'm confusing law and gospel by bringing these stakes up. Bringing up the fact that Christ died before I speak of what the law says. But we're looking at the telos, the purpose of it. He died because he loves you in spite of you. In spite of my sin. In spite of your sin. He loves that you are his creation. He loves that you were supposed to be made in his image. And he restores and blesses you on account of that. For this Lent, let's meditate on that. Not just to feel bad. Indeed, there is joy in knowing that as bad as I am, Christ still loves me. But he still went to a cross. Can you even imagine a nail going into your hand? Let alone both hands and feet. Let alone having the flesh of your back hanging off on, in ribbons thorns pressed into your brow he went through that because he loved us undeserving sinners and to be able to remind yourself every day that christ loves you that much in spite of your sins should mean that lent is also a period of joy for us if we engage in performative sorrows uh, letting those ashes stay on our foreheads a lot longer than they have to. We're all guilty of that. Not taking a shower after Ash Wednesday. Hopefully I'm not the only one. We all know that performative, pharisaic impulse to spend the entirety of this period feeling so good about yourself for how bad you made yourself feel. But this is a time to rejoice. And to thank our Lord Christ with a deeper understanding of what went on on that cross. Let us praise him and belong to him, saying, I am yours. Save me. I could never make this up to you. I still sin to this day. But I am yours. Save me. Now the peace of God which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts 
and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly God, we now enter into a time that is more necessary feeling than it ever has. We live in the closest thing we will ever get to hell. All of our churches betray us. All of our church bodies at best ignore our needs and at worst actively condemn and hunt us down and try to destroy us. But as if that were not enough, we have an entire society oriented towards this, to squishing us, attacking us, trying to make us feel worse than we ever have in our, in our entire lives. And yet, in addition to this, we add our own sins, making it terrible that we can wake up in the morning and say, I deserve nothing better than this. In fact, I deserve worse. I should count myself lucky. But in your mercies toward us, O oh God, you sent your Son to die for every idol that we bowed down to. You sent your Son to die for every lie that we told about you. For every time we besmirched the name of Christ, you sent your Son to die for that so that we may receive your holy mercy upon us. We thank you and we praise you and we belong to you forever and always. Lord Jesus Christ, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever, O Lord. Amen. Typically on Ash Wednesday, I understand we can't do the imposition of ashes from here. We are all online, I'm sorry to say it, and chances are none of us have palm ashes and oil to mix together to even impose it on ourselves and our families. But we do remember that dust we are, and dust is what we shall return to. Nonetheless, in this season of Lent, we rejoice to know that in spite of that death, we will rise again on account of every last sin that Christ died for, being removed from our record of debt. So thus I don't end with an imposition of ashes and a recitation of the curse placed on Adam. Instead, I'm going to leave you with this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.